Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we have a very special episode of the podcast for you. A little over a month ago, we hosted a live streaming panel on the intersection of somatics and spirituality with luminary figures and respected teachers Sally Kempton, Judith Blackstone, Ray Johnson, Tara Judell, and Scott Lyons. We talked about what it means to embody consciousness, discussed the obstacles to healing and expansion in our culture today, as well as the various maps that each of these teachers use to facilitate the process of healing and somatic attunement. I'd like to share the audio from this panel with you today as our 96th episode of the Chitheads podcast. A little disclaimer, I was having some Wi-Fi difficulties during the panel, so there are times that I cut out and some of the original questions have been shortened to edit out the audio disturbances. But that aside, I am sure that you will find the things these teachers have to say inspiring and educational. I hope you enjoy it. Also, I should mention that this panel was held as a way to help promote an upcoming immersion in Berkeley, California, the Embodied Consciousness Immersion, which is taking place in October 2019. You can find out more information about that event at embodiedflow.com. Many of these teachers are also on faculty of our upcoming 300-hour training in mind-body therapy, which you can also find out more about on our website at embodiedphilosophy.com. All right, so let's turn it over to this recording of the Embodied Consciousness panel, Somatics and Spirituality, Maps of Healing and Transformation. So hello, everyone, and welcome. On behalf of Embodied Flow and Embodied Philosophy, I'd like to welcome you to this live panel discussion with faculty members from the upcoming Embodied Consciousness Immersion taking place in Berkeley, California in October. Today, we're going to be discussing somatics and spirituality, maps of healing and transformation. I am joined by Judith Blackstone, Ray Johnson, Sally Kempton, Scott Lyons, and Tara Judell. I'm Jacob Kyle. I'm the director of Embodied Philosophy, and I'm your moderator for today's conversation. The first speaker I'd like to introduce you to is Judith Blackstone. Judith developed the realization process, a method of embodying psychological and relational healing and non-dual spiritual awakening. She teaches the realization process throughout the United States and online in workshops and teacher certification trainings. She was a psychotherapist in private practice for 35 years and before Before that, she was a dancer with an NYC modern dance company. She is the author of Trauma and the Unbound Body, The Healing Power of Fundamental Consciousness, Belonging Here, The Enlightenment Process, The Intimate Life, The Subtle Self, and The Empathic Ground. There's also a 60 audio series available uh, with uh, Judith on the realization process, which is available from Sounds True. Ray Johnson, our second speaker of the panel, is a somatic psychotherapist, social worker, and registered somatic movement therapist who currently chairs the somatic studies specialization in the depth psychology doctoral program at Pacifica Graduate Institute. The author of several books, including Elemental Movement, A Somatic Approach to Movement Education, Knowing in Our Bones, Exploring the Embodied Knowledge of Somatic Educators, and Embodied Social Justice, Ray teaches and trains internationally on embodied microaggressions, somatic research methods, and the poetic body. Sally Kempton is a master of meditation, yoga philosophy, and practical tantric philosophy. Her retreats and workshops are known for creating breakthroughs, born of her ability to help people turn sublime truth into lived and life-shifting experience. Sally spent 20 years as a Swami in a Vedic order and has been studying and teaching spiritual wisdom for 40 years. 
She is the author of Awakening Shakti, The Transformative Power of the Goddesses of Yoga, and Meditation for the Love of It, a seminal book on basic meditation practice, and writes the popular yoga journal column, Wisdom. Scott Lyons is dedicated to teaching embodiment as a way of exploring human development, healing, and transformation. Scott is the co-creator of Embodied Flow, a school of yoga and therapy, and developer of somatic stress release, a proce uh, processes of restoring our biological adaptation system. Scott teaches internationally as well as works in private practice, integrating his background as a clinical psychologist, osteopath, and movement therapist. Scott is incredibly grateful for the faculty of the Embodied Consciousness Immersion for making a long-standing dream come true, uh, which is bringing so many incredible explorers of healing and transformation together in a co-created journey. So Scott, if that wasn't clear, is the organizer of the Embodied Con Consciousness Immersion, that event uh, that we'll speak a little bit more about later in the, in the panel. Tara Judell is a world-renowned yoga facilitator moved by bringing humans into their innate sense of freedom and purpose. After 30 years experimenting in all forms of movement, Tara co-created the School of Embodied Flow in 2014 to bring her current passions into a moment of yoga. From a background in literature, film writing, directing, and dance, Tara brings students on a journey of discovery of their numinous self through laughter, meditation, embodiment, movement, and inquiry. So hello to all of our panelists. Thanks so much for showing up today and having this conversation. So our conversation today stems from the broader conversation of embodied consciousness, which as I've mentioned, is the uh, title of the upcoming immersion that you'll all be participating in. in Scott, in a conversation that we had before this panel, reminded me of the term, so jivatman is that, is that kernel of expansive wholeness that lives in us as us, or the, oftentimes um, we often interpret it as a, as a soul, or you could think of it as the individuated expression of Brahman or the absolute consciousness. And, and we're here in a certain sense to explore the many maps available to um, that we may use as tools in the surface of activating or actualizing this already existing wholeness and experiencing it in, in a fully um, embodied way. But what's very interesting about all of you is that you have very different maps uh, of approaching this kind of the shared understanding of consciousness. So I wanted to start um, just with the very simple question of what consciousness is to you and, and what does it mean to embody it? Judith, do you want to answer that question first? Yeah, very simple question. What is consciousness <laughs> and what does it mean to embody it? Um, consciousness, of course, is, is many, many different things and can be talked about in many different ways, but the consciousness that, that I and the other panelists seem to be interested in here is the ground, what we can call the ground level of consciousness uh, in the realization process, uh, which is the method I teach. I call it fundamental consciousness. And it's a, it's a ground level of consciousness in that, in that we don't, uh, it's not consciousness of something, and we don't uh, envision it or create it in any way. Uh, it's revealed, it's revealed as we enter into the deep internal space of our body. And, um, and because of that, because it's revealed rather than created, at least that's the experience, because it's revealed rather than created, it feels authentic. It feels like who we actually are, uh, which is, a, of course, a 
a wonderful, wonderful feeling and a very healing feeling. Now to embody it, it simply does, it simply does pervade the internal space of the body when we are able to uncover it. And I know we each have our own, the panelists here, we each have our own method of doing that. The realization process has a sequence of practices for doing just that, for uncovering that very ground fundamental consciousness. When we do that, we experience it pervading our whole body. As, and at the same time, we experience it pervading our environment. Because it pervades our body, it feels like the basis of our individual being. And because it pervades our body and environment, it feels like the basis of our oneness with everything else. Uh, Ray, what would you add to that um, from your perspective? What is consciousness and what does it mean to embody? embody? Um, well, it's, it's, it's perhaps a, l a little bit unfortunate that I'm going second because I'm going to throw a little bomb into the, even the question right off, right off the bat, which is to say that, um, that I'm, I'm not a philosopher. Um, to the extent that I have a, an understanding of any of these questions, what is embodiment, what is consciousness, um, it's really um, from the lens, and, and this is where um, this whole idea of us all having different maps really starts to come into play. Um, for me, my lens has always been experiential um, rather than conceptual or abstract. So. Um, when you ask what's consciousness, I would say it seems to be our awareness of experience. And um, I like, I really um, appreciated what Judith said in that sense of in the moments when I've had experiences where my awareness feels full and vibrant and grounded and present centered, there does also seem to be um, a sense that my awareness is not just of myself, but of my environment as well. So um, if I were going to define consciousness as the awareness of our experience, rather than the lack of awareness of what we're doing and how we are as we go about our everyday lives, that it seems to me that one of the places where we are most frequently unconscious is in how we're feeling in our bodies. Um, and that many of us, for lots of good reasons, have spent um, our lives mostly with our attention, mostly with our consciousness, either directed outward to the environment, what's going on, what do I need to attend to, where am I driving, those kinds of really practical things, and also um, an awareness of what we're thinking. Sometimes we're also an awareness of what we're feeling emotionally, particularly if those emotions surge up in a, in a way that really grabs our attention. Um, but I'm not so sure that we're as conscious of sensation in the body. And part of the reason why I'm so looking forward to this immersion event, and I'm so looking forward to working with the other panelists, is that I think that we all, in our own ways, work to cultivate an increased awareness of the body with the understanding that it, it's not just more information, but that the body serves as this, mm, how do I say it? That, it? that in a way it serves this integrative function and that the consciousness of the body when we bring it to our everyday lives shifts the quality of our experience, I think in a really important way. That's all I'd say Thank you. for now to yes. start with. Thank you, Ray.
<laughs> I, th I appreciate you throwing that you know, wrench into the conversation, although I think it, it, you know, it, it, it points to something very important, which is that you know, what I see you sort of pointing to is the way in which sometimes the kind of metaphysical questioning can lead to a certain bypassing of the embodied experience. So when we, when we uh, oftentimes, especially in spiritual communities, you see references to that absolute consciousness as something other than one's embodied experience. So one then uses or leverages that, you know, that kind of philosophical concept as a way of avoiding or, you know, obviously we know this, this, this very popular concept of spiritual. Um, so, you know, now segue to, um, to Sally, who of course works um, in, you know, this, uh, in this tradition of Kashmir Shaivism. So, I'm, um, let me speak for abstract philosophy here for a moment. Uh, so the, the position of the non-dual traditions, including Kashmir Shaivism, Vedanta, and I would say to a large extent, well, I won't speak for Buddhism, um, but it, it is that consciousness is the, is the source, the basis of the universe. So the, you know, the basic metaphor for consciousness as it's defined in the Eastern non-dual traditions is that it, it is this vast, endless, infinite, beyond all concepts, ocean of intelligence, which also pulsates with power. And that everything that we experience, including the body, is um, imbued with that, that quality, which is also, also makes it an open door to realizations of to and to the ultimate prize as it's described in the eastern traditions of realization of your real nature so the tantric view vision of this which has been really the heart of my my self-discovery and what i teach is the understanding that because this source consciousness is everywhere there are pathways to it in every single particle of the universe which certainly includes the physical body. Um, and obviously we're gonna talk more about that, but also includes uh, what the tradition calls the subtle body, that is the energy body that both permeates and extends beyond the physical body. So I just wanna say, um, as a, uh, you know, I spent many years doing uh, hardcore spiritual bypassing, so I, I want to acknowledge what Jacob said as a reality. Uh, I also, um, what I've also come to realize as I've worked more with, let's, you know, with embodying consciousness in the physical body, which has definitely, I definitely think is uh, hugely significant. And I would say very modern, postmodern development in, uh, in spiritual life is that, um, many people these days believe that if you're meditating in the subtle body, that you're somehow disembodied or, or doing a spiritual bypass. And my own experience, which I'd like to speak to you know, later, is that, that consciousness, um, the, the ability to experience your not only your physical body, but your subtle body, your causal body, and the, the body of pure consciousness beyond it is worth exploring for everyone. And, uh, and that while the physical body is a profound 
um, target for, or uh, field for embodiment, so is the subtle body. So I, I just want to announce that I'm probably going to be uh, standing for subtle body practice at, rather in, in this company, since there's so much expertise in meditation on the unconsciousness in the physical body. So thank you all. Thank you, Sally. We, I know that uh, I speak for everyone. I think we appreciate that you stand for the subtle body because you do it very beautifully. Um, so next, uh, Scott. So Sure. Uh, I would say for me, consciousness is a constantly evolving uh, question, query. And maybe in this moment, uh, consciousness is our primordial essence, our fundamental building blocks in, and of the cosmos, of us, of everything that is. And embodiment is the process of tasting the flavors, of, of experiencing that fundamental essence. Uh, and I would say, you know, to, to say more about embodiment, it is the place or the intersection point where being, awareness, and experience merge. You know, embodiment can also be a very abstract word. So I think I might add a little bit of a concrete example that I, I personally like to give. Um, and this is one I, I often share in teachings and trainings, which is just the concept of love. And, you know, when we were children and, and, and read it in books or saw it in movies, this, where it stayed as sort of something outside of us, this concept. And then it became more, at some point in our lives, became more of a first person experience where the concept got into an experience, a lived experience of it. And that, that transition from concept to experience is part of what this embodiment process is, where everything shifts, or that potentially anything and everything, including consciousness, shifts from a concept to a lived experience or being part of this thing we experience or talk about as consciousness. Last but certainly not least, Tara, would you like to uh, speak to this question as well? I feel like I agree with everything that's been said. I feel um, some of these people are my teachers and colleagues, so I very much feel that consciousness, um, well, according to my mother, it's what I say in my newsletters about 16 or 20 times per newsletter. Um, but other than that, I think it's, what we refer to as the unified field that also um, coming from the same tradition as Sally is my teacher, um, we might call Shiva consciousness or isness. But I think when awareness becomes aware of itself, that to me feels like what we mean by consciousness, this awareness that's able to reflect on its being aware. And for me, embodiment is expanding those frequencies, or as Scott said, tasting those flavors so that the palate of consciousness, whether it's in the gross body or the subtle body, mind body, or however we discern it, is kind of expanding the palate of tasting consciousness. Thank you. That's very beautiful, Tara. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with you for our next question, which okay. is... It, which is sort of the kind of natural follow-up 
question to this question of, you know, what is embodying consciousness, which is, you know, what kinds of symptoms do we see uh, revealing a state of what we might call disembodied consciousness or unembodied consciousness? Um, I think the biggest thing that I see um, is a disconnect between the, the physical presence of where we are where we stand and um ray and judith both talked about the the relationship to the environment so while somebody their body is there what's happening in kind of the bandwidth of the mind screen is elsewhere and so there seems to be i kind of compare it to like a cnn channel there's like a person talking and then there's something else happening and something else happening in bell jones and this that there's many, many, many things happening, but they're not synchronized into a singularity that's able to um, perceive, inhabit, and interact in a way that, that I guess we would call presence. Right, so I, I feel like there's, uh, what you're saying is there's a lack of integration taking place. A lot of, like, uh, directionalities of information and activity, but not anything centered in, in what we might call that kind of what you mentioned before as the unified field. Yeah, and Beautiful. I, the way I experience it in, let's say, in the yoga classroom, I, I refer to some what looks like transparency, that there's sort of a, clar a clarity when somebody is present and embodied that feels like you the the doorway to seeing and presence it, it creates a magnification of sensation as well as a feeling of clarity and when there's a disembodied sense it feels more like a like a hard a harder barrier from the outside to my way of seeing is is sort of a, a way that I, I i experience it as as a conductor of space Mm. One feels more transparent and the other one feels um, a little more jagged or staticky. So Scott, in uh, uh, what, what do we see in terms of stress? I know you've you know, developed this somatic stress relief uh, release practice. And so I'm wondering what you think in terms of uh, the symptom of stress as being an indicator of this, um, for lack of a better term, disembodied consciousness. Well, I think I might answer it a slightly different way. Uh, and that is, if we're, if we're looking at consciousness as this unified tapestry, woven tapestry, and when we start to look at maybe what is a, an opposite of that, or what would it be when it's not there? And we could call that disembodiment, disconnection, fracture from the whole. And one of the words we use, can we use and substitute for that is isolation or separateness. And right now, I mean, the World Health Organization just came out with some really powerful information that essentially said that their number one concern right now for 2020 is the amount of people who are going to be, who are and going to be experiencing anxiety and depression as a root cause of isolation and separateness. And so, and, you know, one of the things we look at in social, other social sciences is that isolation is the number one reason for violence. So a sense of separateness or isolation is the number one reason for people being able to enact violence. 
And, and in violence, we we're, might be talking about microaggressions, we might be talking about a violence to oneself in the form of self-talk that's really hateful or, um, or a desensitization. We could look at it through the lens of interpersonal violence between one person and another, or inter-environmental, intercultural violence, or even a isolation or separateness, excuse me, that shows up in a spirituality, which is a bifurcation between myself and the cosmos, or something more than just me. And so, you know, isolation and separateness is, is quite, um, is quite, I don't want to say dangerous, but it's quite significant to pay attention to. And that we can look at sort of the antidote of isolation as the weaving or the reconnecting back of our essential nature to each other, to oneself, to the environment, to culture, and to our sense of us and beyond. Thank you, Scott. That's a really great answer. And I'm really uh, happy that you made the connection between isolation and violence, because I think that's a really important point. And, and so now I want to move to Sally and ask um, about, you know, this concept of isolation, you know, in terms of the non-dual spiritual traditions, what is happening that is kind of fostering that isolation? And then if you want to talk about any other symptoms that came up for you. Okay, so um, I, I'm just going to take this back to my experience and the experience of most of my students, and I think most humans, is that part of the, the price we pay for being, um, for being centered in our mental body, for being centered in, our, you know, in the endlessly repetitive mental loops that most of us live in these days, is, is not only a feeling of isolation, but, but the experience of getting trapped in our thought loops. And my experience with embodying consciousness, that is, with, you know, which can be as simple as just getting mindful of the breath. You know, the, the, the mindfulness technique, which has been the way of tuning into sensation, tuning into uh, learning how to recognize that your thoughts may be untrue, stupid, and uh, trapping you in a loop. Um, all, of, you know, all of these capacities come from our ability to bring consciousness and attention to actual concrete experience, whether it's the felt sense of our emotions or the fact that our mind is spinning. So, it, you know, this is, you know, in that great cliche of modernism, getting out of your thought stream is the, you know, the, really the first step to get free of isolation and connecting to the anchor of the body uh, in whatever way you can is for most of us, the first step towards getting some, some sanity and some feeling of connection, not only to our own body, but through that miracle of consciousness, when we connect, when we, when we actually recognize and are willing to be present with ourselves, we are then able to be present with the physical environment and, and also uh, other people. So uh, yeah, I, to get out of, to get through isolation means to learn how to disidentify with your thought stream, first of all. Beautiful. Thank you, Sally. Uh, uh, all right. So, Ray, Ray, do you have a, a, a left field uh, wrench question <laughs> answer for us? For me, uh, for me, the 
the most salient symptoms of disembodied consciousness seem to constellate around boredom, apathy, numbness, absence, and headiness. So that might just be a different way of saying what, what Scott and Sally and, and Tara have, have already said. Um, but I might just add a little bit of my own elaboration to what I think Sally was actually suggesting, which is when we're able to reconnect with our senses, when we're able to come into our bodies in a conscious, intentional way, and, and I, would, I would suggest maybe not just be aware of our breathing, but savor it, like enjoy our breath reconnect with the sensual pleasure that our bodies are always capable of, even when they're also in pain. Um, that this really fascinating and important other thing I think happens, which is, is something that, that the poet David White alluded to in that moment of sort of waking up to the realize that, realization that you're not just present in your own body, but you're present in an embedded environment. And, and the way he puts it is, when you wake up, everything is waiting for you. Beautiful. Thank you for that, Ray. Um, so um, Judith, in terms of the uh, realization process, uh, what do you see in terms of, of symptoms that are um, indicative of this state that we're talking about? Yeah, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting thing that wherever we inhabit the body and, we're, and that's what I mean by embodiment, that we actually live within the body. And by the way, it's only my experience and, and you know, as Sally says, I'm experiencing the people I work with. Um, when we inhabit the body as a whole, that's when we uncover that very, very subtle consciousness that's not necessarily consciousness of something, but that reveals uh, all of our experiences as a as a unity, as a, all at once, as a whole. So again, that integrative level of consciousness. When we inhabit a part of our body, though, even if we, for example, just live within our chest, and we just experience ourselves as present, as living within our chest, we experience the present moment inside us and outside us at the same time. And that to me is a very interesting thing. So the, the created protective barrier the, the artificial barrier, the created barrier, uh, dissolves when we actually inhabit the internal space of the body. And we do, have, we do have a container, but it's a permeable container. And wherever we inhabit the body, we're fluidly responsive to the world around us. So if we inhabit our chest, we're emotionally fluidly responsive to the world around us. If we don't inhabit our chest, we're holding, we're clamped down. You know, those two things are, are synonymous. To clamp down on ourselves emotionally is not to inhabit our chest, is not to be in contact with ourselves. Same thing with every part of the body. And, um, you, you know, all of the different uh, qualities and functions that are revealed as we inhabit the body move more fluidly. Our thoughts move more fluidly as we inhabit our head. So our understanding of the world around us is, is more direct. Uh, less captured in the past. Someone talked about presence, and when we live in the body and we're responsive in that way, fluidly to our environment, then uh, 
then we're actually present to, the, to this moment. Other, otherwise, we're actually living in the past because as I'm sure we'll get to eventually in this discussion, what keeps us from living within the body are those protective constrictions that we made in reaction to painful events in our past. So we're actually, to some extent, held in our past in those areas where, where, we're, not, where we're not conscious. You know, the term, the term disembodied consciousness is jarring to me because disembodiment is unconsciousness, right? So where we've constricted ourselves, we can't be conscious in that, in that very subtle and, and responsive way. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Judith. So um, in the interest of time, I'm going to fuse uh, two of our questions here. Hopefully I'll do it in, a, in an effective way. But, um, so, you know, obviously this term somatics is in the title of, of um, our panel for today. Somatics and spirituality is the title of uh, the chosen title. And, you know, what interests me, of course, about the word soma is that we find it in both the Western and the Eastern traditions, right? In the East, we see soma as the flowing nectar absolute the elixir of life that's espoused in the vedas and in the west we see soma uh, in ancient greek as a term for the body so it's you know clearly a beautiful word that transcends this you know east west divide which is problematic in its right and highlights the topic of of embodied consciousness um in its you know capacity to exist across cultural context. So I think it's a really beautiful word to use. Um, and, and so I want to use it as a way of segueing into a question of your own maps for healing, because uh, our you know, subtitle to this panel, of course, is Maps for Healing and Transformation. You all have a slightly different approach to, to that question of, of the map. And so I want to kind of just unpack each of your maps, and then we'll kind of talk about obstacles um you know to to embodying consciousness and 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 why one might choose one map over another at, at various points of their own process or or spiritual trajectory or awakening uh journey however you want to refer to it um so let's start with scott um but scott um what is your map for healing in terms of uh somatic stress release and maybe you think, mm -hmm. um maybe there's a better term for that from your from in your work, um, and how does it connect to this, you know, uh, uh, notion of somatics? Yeah. Um, well, I might back up a little bit and say what I'm really excited about in, in talking about the diversity of maps is that <clears throat> that this this process of healing and transformation should be and is as unique and individual as we are, and. I'll say that took me some time to realize for sure, and a lot of humbleness, um, just still coming. But <laughs> the, um, the, you know, one of the things I really appreciated in the collection of this panelist, but also the faculty, is, is the recognition of how to, how a map can create the support of a journey towards healing and transformation without the attachment that that is the healing and transformation. And that, that the map is really a directionality without being the terrain of this growing, evolving, enlivening experience that is, you know, for me, what it is healing, which is the, the re-remembrance of our interwovenness, our connectivity. And so my personal map is evolving at the moment. 
But, um, you know, and I'm really interested in looking at through the particular lenses of where these connect, these places of connection can be enlivened and enhanced, and also where they're a bit fractured or, or split apart. And I, I sort of named those lenses before by saying like the, the individual or the interpersonal, the interpersonal, the intercultural or intersocial or interrelational, uh, interenvironmental, and then the interspiritual. And, and sort of looking at within these lenses of where is there already a sense of connectivity, of, of feeling that integration? And where is it just out of reach? And what are the obstructions or things challenging the, the direct experience of that connectivity where it is that we experience, you know, what Tara and I refer to as this embodied sense of flow, this um, where we are living in the, the, the flow, for lack of a better word, but living in the experience of interconnectivity through perhaps all of these lenses. And then if we zoom out, just the, the global sense of interconnectivity. Excellent, beautiful. So since you did mention Tara, let's move on to Tara and, and ask <laughs> the question, um, you know, this question of, of, and I understand, you know, for you, there's um, integration of a lot of these different perspectives. So in the context of practice, um, you know, how does this show up for you? Well, my entry point to, uh, to somatics, I mean, I, I started through the world of yoga and particularly, um, I would say that my world of yoga was very asana based for the first 10 years or so. And, um, and it changed drastically in meeting Sally and um, getting a very deep meditation practice and really getting into the, you know, the tantric map. What excited me about meeting the world of somatics and through the avenue of body-mind centering and where Scott and I met when Bonnie Bainbridge going, who will be in the, in the Berkeley conference, um, was meeting the felt sense of, of my body in a much deeper resonant way opened up that tantric map in a way that bridged everything that I was looking for. So while I think I had a two-dimensional sketch of um, embodiment, it, it kind of became technicolor from, from the world of really inhabiting the felt sense. And, um, you know, meeting Scott brought in other landscapes of psychology and um, other technology. So I think what we're working from in Embodied Flow is, is bringing together these ideas and creating um, a matrix that can, can kind of go from this multiplicity into, into more simplicity. But I have to also say, like in, in my in my own life, um, one of my teachers, John Hansen, that I met in a course with Sally Kempton, introduced me to the work of Judith Blackstone. And at a time when um, I was really had all of this material, it kind of got really simplified in um, reading Judith's Enlightenment Process book. So. 
so there there is a map and then there's also i think a simpler a, a much simpler approach that judith brings to the table so um we kind of play with the map and off the map and um and, and try to dance with that but one thing that scott's really shared with me is um meeting people with what where they're at and i think um what i'm trying to do is find as many bridges as possible to um help bring people from let's say from the brain in you know down into the rest of their body or if their sense is being so open and vast to give them a sense of containment so to play a little bit with the various maps in order to um bring people you know kind of like willy wonka's elevator it could go every direction um <laughs> into that sense of presence and being um so let's move on to sally sally um the same question of 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 the map for healing i know you work a lot with divine imagery and and i don't know if you want to talk a little bit about i do work with divine imagery but the thing i wanted to say is that i work with whatever works i mean i i'm in the you know tara is one of my students and i think one of the reasons that tara and i have this connection is because we're both highly eclectic and both very much ad hoc in the way we approach healing trauma entering meditation in, and entering the body. So in terms of uh, healing modalities, there are certain ones that I default to again and again, one of which is a, a kind of a somatic process uh, that's um, not unusual, not uncommon, in, in which you, you actually enter into the felt state in the body of the emotion. And in my experience has been as I think with others of you, that uh, that when you are able to really plunge into an area of tension or or an area of emotional distress, to feel it in the physical body and then create some space around it, to create a, you know to connect to uh, to consciousness itself, to connect to awareness itself, which I usually do through imagining space. That that this that by allowing the energy of the stuckness or the trauma or the numbness or the, you know, the anger or whatever to, to interact with the space that, that the, the dense energy will start to dissolve into subtler energy. And uh, so as a, you know, quick fix healing practice, that is the main one I work with. Uh, and recently, um, if we want to talk about divine images, I, I have actually been working with an embodiment process that, uh, that, that, involves doing something very similar to what Judith teaches in the in the realization process, which is tuning into the felt sense of the three centers, the the belly center, the heart center, and the the head center, which you know are the three main spiritual centers as well as being, of course, in charge of all sorts of biological processes. Um, and then and then reimagining the inside of my body as uh, as goddess, as light, as you know, uh, as a, a very light, subtle substance, which seems to infuse consciousness in, you know, like a, a, a more, um, I, I just call it divine <laughs> experience into my own, into my viscera. And I've been finding that to be quite a powerful process. 
and I, I want to say that uh, I believe you actually have to have a very strong feeling of connection to your own viscera, to your own, your own physicality for that, for that process to, to show you what it can show you. Um, it, it's a way of integrating your physical, your physicality uh, with your ultimate divinity that's um, really kind of remarkable. I've just, I've been, I've been, I'll just say, I've been working with this probably for about a year. I've just started teaching it. So I, um, I'm still exploring the, you know, what it actually means to, to try to integrate. Experimental phase. Exactly. Your physicality with your, your utter non-physicality. Excellent. Thank you, Sally. So Judith, um, the map of the realization process, if it's appropriate to call it that, um, what, what are the features of, of that particular map and how does it help us to um, encounter this, uh, this somatic uh, experience? In the realization process, I'm, I'm primarily interested in helping people attune to and finally realize themselves, which is a, a little bit of a process to get to from attunement, direct attunement, as we do it in the realization process, to, to the self-arising, to the actuality of it, but this uncovering and knowing oneself as fundamental consciousness. And as I said at the beginning, when we do uncover that, we know it as our own internal being, and it, it pervades, unifies, and reveals all of our temporal internal experience so at the same time it can it can and as well it's the the ground of our connection with other people and with the world around us so we do a series of practices inhabiting the body attuning to the space outside the body experiencing the space inside and outside is the same experiencing that space that pervades our own being pervading the objects and the people around us and um, eventually with practice that becomes not a volitional attunement, but actually seems to reveal something that's already there. And um, in doing that, we also get to see where we have constricted ourselves in reaction to traumatic experience or any sort of overwhelming abrasive experience, especially as children. And we use the core, some core of the body, as Sally was saying, uh, the points along it, to get that very fine focus into those tensions in such a way that they move actually further into towards the constriction and then release so that it's a very precise method, does require a little sensitivity, very precise method of discerning and releasing those constrictions. Now, when we release them, we get to inhabit ourselves more fully. And as a consequence of that, we get to uh, experience oneness with the world around us more fully. Before I leave off, I just want to say one thing about maps, uh, spiritual maps. What has fascinated me about spiritual maps in Buddhism and Hinduism is where they meet. Uh, because these maps that have come down to us, although they can sound quite abstract if you don't know anything about the experience, if you read them, they're, they're almost all based on people's experience. And I'm just fascinated by that, that Long Champa over there in Tibet is saying something that maybe you have to stretch a little bit, it sounds so similar to what Shankara in India is saying, uh, that, that this is an experience. And there are, so there are certain similarities in that experience that seem to cross culture 
and time. And, um, and that to me is affirming. We still need to get to it each in our own way. We need to uncover it. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't help us to just understand it and go, oh, wow, that's, that's great. We need, to, we need to take steps to experience it. But the fact that it's already been talked about by all these people in, um, at least very directly in Buddhism and Hinduism, uh, it's, it's uh, very reassuring for me. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that you point that out, Judith, because I think, you know, it, it points to this openness, right, to the phenomenological experience that arises in the context of deep meditation and, you know, points to, uh, you know, a kind of cultural environment in which that openness was you know, the condition. And then based on these experiences, then they were transcribed in these ways that, that as you know, we can see when we look across traditions end up being wildly resonant with one another. Yes. Um, and, um, and that's really beautiful. And, uh, you know, moving on to Ray, I, I, but at least from what I understand of your work, Ray, is what you really want to open up is a kind of openness to that immediacy um, of, of experience. So I, I'm wondering what you'd like to add here in terms of the map of, especially as it relates, I know, to your work and on embodying social justice and, and how you would approach this. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I very much relate to, to much of what the other panelists have said about the the utility of of a, a wide range of maps and and the importance of not mistaking the map for the territory um, and that that there is a process of self-discovery that when we deeply engage it is inherently and in, in some ways almost effortlessly transformative it's almost as if the awareness of who we are and what's what we're experiencing in itself changes us. So um, with that said, um, one of the particular maps that I'm especially interested in exploring is what I might call a socio-cultural political map that um, I think that we have a, a philosophical tradition, at least in the West, of both um, polarizing and, and disconnecting mind and body and spirit, um, but also relegating the body to an inferior position so that it's subordinated, subjugated, ignored, marginalized. And I see a, a, a really, what I think is an, a really important parallel in the way that we treat one another and that in hierarchical social systems, there are certain groups of people who are privileged over others and power dynamics that exist between members of different groups. And so um, I really, um, I'm really focused on the ways in which for many of us in the West, growing up and being socialized into a state of um, disembodiment or lack of awareness of our felt experience actually allows the um, perpetuation of particular social systems to continue to occur. That, that if, if the citizenry is numb and disconnected, they're more pliant and compliant. And so part of my, part of my work really feels as though it's, 
It's what I might call somatic activism, which is a process for reclaiming the lived felt experience of our own bodies, not just because that's our birthright as beings, and not just because that's a route to enlightenment and connection with all things, although I think it is, but because reclaiming the felt experience of our own bodies allows us to deeply know the social and political conditions under which we live. And that when we deeply know this, the social and political conditions under which we live every day and systemically, we're in a much better position to resist them from an informed, um, intentional, authentic perspective, um, rather than um, just fighting amongst ourselves for um, position and privilege. I mean, if one look at history would, would show us that, that although there have been some long-standing um, oppressions of particular social groups, there's also been this, this sort of rotation of someone's on the top, then someone's on the bottom, and then we all shuffle for position. And um, that rather than just directing our political efforts and our social efforts to our own rights, whatever group we may be members of, um, but actually look at the process whereby, and I would argue it's a very embodied process, whereby we dominate and subjugate and, and submit to one another and beginning to really bring the kind of presence and authenticity that we've cultivated through all of these somatic practices to seeing if we can't begin to heal some of the sociocultural trauma um, that I think lives in all our lives and in all our bodies. Thank you, Ray. I'm actually I'm going to stick with you for the next question, and um, and I realize that you may be already kind of answering this next question, but I'll ask it more directly anyway. <laughs> which sure. is, um, I, and in the interest of time, I am going to put these two together. Which is, um, you know, what are the most common obstacles uh, to healing as as you see it, and and where are we going? In, yeah. in this larger, you know, if we're, we're talking about maps here, you know, see, uh, yeah. if we stick with that analogy, there's a destination in a map. So what's the destination and what are the obstacles to get there? Okay, so um, I don't think there's a destination. I, I think that, I think that <laughs> the, the task is, of the map is to inhabit the territory and to be free to travel through it to be all of who we are and allow that fullness of who we are to change according to the context, to be fluid and flexible and adaptive. And I don't think there's a destination for me. Um, it seems to me that although there are lots of different obstacles, the, the one I encounter the most frequently is fear. And I think there are lots of ways of um, working with the body as, uh, as a resource, as a way to experience ourselves in a more grounded and centered way that I think can be a, a lovely antidote to fear. Um, and when we're not as scared, I think there are lots of possibilities that open up in terms of what we can do and what we're willing to do and what we're willing to try. And 
um, if we are territories that are in the process of, of being explored, it seems to me to be um, a real regret to be afraid to really journey as deeply and as long and as fully as we want to. Mm. Thank you, Ray. So, um, Sally, um, question to you as well. So this this sort of two-part question, which is, um, what are the uh, common obstacles to healing as you see it, um, or awakening, um, and, and where are we headed, or what's the goal in this healing and transformation process? So, of course, I, I agree that that there is not there is no destination other than the unfolding process of awakening to to our to what we are to who we are to who others are to what the world is um, in terms of obstacles i would say i want to come back to a question that has shown up on the q a and also in the chat that what as to what is felt sense which is a word that we're all using and someone asked what it is and I actually think that the inability to, to contact your, uh, your capacity for sensory, for feeling your own sensory experience is a huge obstacle that, that fortunately we can overcome through practice. So, so many of the people, and I think all of you have that experience who I work with, you know, when I ask them to feel into the heart or when I ask them to feel into the hara, uh, or to feel the tension in their shoulder and, you know, and consciously release it. They can't feel it. They can think it. They can visualize it. They can imagine it. But to to actually uncover your uh, your ability to to sensorily experience your own body is something that we are not. We are generally not taught, even if we're athletes or yogis. So there's a very step by step process for discovering this. And um, the other big obstacle that, that, uh, that I, I see is an identification with the superficial aspects of the body. That is, that is the way you look, um, your, your ideas about your own health, uh, your concepts about not just body image, but about your own possibilities. I believe is the biggest obstacle that most of us have. We have a concept about ourselves, which of course has everything to do with our family history and, you know, our, our, and our social conditioning, but also with the way we're wired, you know, with, with that, you know, that, um, that impenetrable or until very recently impenetrable uh, connective connectivity between our neurons that makes us, think certain thoughts again and again and again, even though we don't want to think them. Uh, so, and to me, the antidote to all of it, as several of you have said, is the ability to, to actually get a concrete felt sense of, you know, of recentering yourself in your, in your physical, in your soma, in your, um, in your sensory experience. Beautiful. Thank you, Sally. Um, Tara, would you like to chime in here about the uh, the obstacles to um, this process as you see as you've seen it, maybe perhaps in your work with embodied flow? Um, and uh, I think we, we're we're all agreeing there's no destination, but perhaps you have some other uh, thoughts on that uh, particular question. Our hope 
with embodied flow and the evolution of that conversation is you know along the lines of what what has been said i mean i i wish that everyone can discover inside of themselves the 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 potential of what being a human actually is so the full spectrum of feeling and the full possibilities and to follow up and pursue the the inclinations the desires the the unique unprecedented unrepeatable aspects of themselves that they have come here to to do and so we're really interested in what creates a landscape of freedom that is you know to me the promise of yoga is that i'm un i'm unboundedly free and so to find inside of myself where what where are the obstacles and i would say i mean i like what ray said i mean fear kind of underscores all the obstacles that we see a fear of letting go of a personality that's either um, imposed upon us by society or is imposed upon us by ourselves, insisting that we are the same self that we were at 12 or 18 or wherever we kind of boxed ourselves in and um, trying to see how we can kind of slowly or gradually or sometimes quantumly expand the boundaries of what we perceive ourselves to be um, using the variety of these methodologies. And I also see people really um, fearful of what other people think, that, that that seems to be a huge hindrance on people moving freely or expressing freely or, um, or just becoming what what may we've never even seen before in in a way that could be absolutely um valuable to the universal body and so i think the fear of failure or the fear of um, being perceived in a certain way is a huge obstacle to people actually experiencing themselves. And I really like this, what's been said about resourcing the, um, the natural intuition that is gifted to us in this kind of um, vertical core that Judith refers to is really a huge asset for that. Um, I don't know, I could go on. I'm so excited by this <laughs> group of people. So it gets me um, a little stimulated. Yeah, I'm stimulated too. <laughs> Tara, I, I really appreciate what you said because I feel like what you're pointing to is, you know, what is often brought up in kind of evolutionary conversations is that we don't even know the possibilities of the evolution of consciousness. And there is this, you know, if we can get those obstacles out of the way, there are these emergent faculties and possibilities of human connectedness and interaction and consciousness and awareness that we don't even have the capacity to to um, uh, imagine, and, and, and so I'm really glad that you brought that up. So let's go to Judith now um, and, uh, and see what illuminating things she has to add. Hi, Judith. The, 
I think, yeah, I love what you're saying. It's, there might be a destination, but who knows what it is? We don't, we have no idea. Um, but in terms of the obstacles, I, I would agree with Ray that the biggest one is fear, the one that we meet up with most often, maybe in ourselves and the people we're working with is fear. Um, and I would add to that despair, um, despair. It, you know, it has seemed to me that in order for people to heal, they need to be both humble, but they also need to have just some kernel of self-love, self-hope, uh, self-respect that, that they, they know they can go further, that they, that they, they know that's a possibility. Um, so uh, combating uh, the despair that some people bring to the process that this is not possible or not possible for me, um, that's, the old, that's the only thing I would add to that. Beautiful. Thank you, Judith. Um, so now I'm uh, ending on Scott so that he can uh, take us home to the final destination, not of our awakening process, but to this conversation, which is the embodied consciousness immersion. So uh, Scott, can you talk a little bit about how you, you know, you know, what you'd have, what you'd obviously contribute to this, to the answer to this question, um, and then use that as a way to segue a little bit into um, uh, a short uh, um, sort of lowdown of the uh, immerse, upcoming immersion and how people can connect to that who are interested. Um, well, I might, I might start with adding on to what Sally was sharing about the felt sense. And um, the felt sense is a word coined by Eugene Gidlin. And um, I just butchered his last name, but he'll, he'll forgive me someday. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it, to me, it's a reference to that it is the language or communication of consciousness experienced by the qualities and the characteristics within our sensory uh, uh, capacities. So that the, the felt sense is something tangible, but it's, it's not just something random. It is the way in which this pre-verbal language of consciousness is expressing itself through us. And that's what I would say, the, the felt senses in addition to what Sally was saying. And, um, and, and when we talk about obstacles, to, to me, um, in the spirit of, of Ray, I'm gonna throw a little wrench, um, <laughs> which I love her so much for, uh, always doing, <laughs> which is I don't think obstacles are, are specific I think they're circumstantial. And they're circumstantial in reference to our capacities, our resilience, our connectivity that we already have as a, as a ground. And when, you know, what we might name as an obstacle is something that locks or uh, gets in the way of our, that interconnect communication, that interconnectivity. So I don't know if I can say there's one particular block because one, one obstacle for you might not be the same obstacle for me, but the, the sort of language we can use or the understanding we could use to identify a block is, is really important, which is something that you know, uh, gets in the way of me feeling whether we call it flow or my true nature or ease or comfort or compassion, all of those things we can recognize as that is our true nature, that sense of holism and ease and flow. 
And anything that is thwarting us from experiencing that firsthand would be considered an obstacle. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. So I want to ha- now um, just segue into our Q&A. And, um, and actually, one of the questions from Daisy is, um, could you give us a preview of what will be at the conference? Uh, you know, will we have conversations like this? Will we be engaging in practices? Um, so on and so forth. So could you give us a little bit of a, of a summary of what's to come at the Embodied Consciousness Immersion? Yeah. So we called it an immersion as opposed to a conference. And that's an important discernment here for us or for me. And that being that a conference typically has like you choose who you go to and then you don't, you're not with a community the whole time, typically in a conference, not always. Um, and, and something that was really important for me and the faculty was that the community was in this journey together. And so what we did, which is extremely unique in my experience, was we co-created a curriculum of what it is using all of these different maps uh, to to create a a week-long journey. And one of the beautiful things of having Tara Judell in there, especially in the morning sections, is that she will be offering the first hour and a half of the day is an integration process of just an opportunity to experience these maps. And then through the day, there will each be presenting various aspects of the lenses that I talked about earlier, or these practices into the deepening of ourselves, ourselves in relation to others, ourselves in relationship to cultural, social, political entities, um, and into spirituality, and to recognize firsthand where these obstacles and obstructions emerge, and how to support the process of recognizing that they're part of our journey and transmuting that energy into this process of finding more flow or this embodied consciousness or our true nature. Um, so that's, that's the basic journey that's co-created by the faculty for each of you. Uh, and there also will be two panels. Uh, in the middle of the week and at the very end, hosted by your lovely host here, Jacob Kyle, who will be engaging in this type of conversation for about an hour and a half, but the rest is deeply experiential. It is a deep experiential process. And at the end of the day, which I love, which is unique too, is that all the faculty of that day comes back and offers an integration time with all the participants. And then at the end of the, um, the immersion is a, is a party with Cece White, who if you've never heard her play, is uh, the embodied voice of embodied consciousness. <laughs> and, I'm glad you mentioned the party, Scott. I was, I was, I was waiting to hear word of the party yeah, when that was happening. There you were. It's all about the party for you, Jacob Kyle. <laughs> uh, and then uh, several other faculty that weren't able to join us today is Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohn of um, the Creator of Body, Mind, Centering, uh, Dr. Michael Beckwith, uh, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, and then C.C. White, who I also mentioned, who will also be bringing their brilliant inspirational maps and deep passions into this co-created journey. 
Um, one of them is from Karen, which I feel like touches a little bit on, on Ray. Uh, this was before Ray started talking about fear, which is, in, isn't this also about fear and feeling unsafe, needing other people to reconnect and become safe again, which I feel like uh, Ray has addressed. But then the follow-up question that Karen asks is, um, adding to my question, for many people, it's unsafe to be in the body as it feels unsafe to be present in it. So when that, you know, you know, so what I see her asking is really, you know, what about when being somatically attuned is this sort of terrifying, traumatic place to be? My own, uh, my own professional uh, work included about 20 years as a psychotherapist working with uh, survivors of trauma and in some cases quite severe trauma and so I'm very familiar with um, with the experience of the body not being a safe place um, and I think that there are lots of reasons for it one of the one of the reasons um, that I've I've um, most often encountered in my clinical work is that the body becomes a source of sensations and memories that are intolerably and excruciatingly painful and frightening. So the safest way to survive um, experiences that cause that, cause the body to be this source of, of pain and fear is to disconnect. So I think the first thing that's important to say about what happens when people are afraid to experience their bodies is to recognize that the reason why they're not experiencing their bodies is probably because they've engaged a very functional survival strategy and to give them kudos for that rather than to see it as a failing or a weakness or a problem. Really, I think it's really critical to depathologize anyone who's coming from um, a place of, I kind of feel like I don't know how to feel my body, but I'm really quite honestly not sure I want to. But to spend as much time with that question as, as is needed so that um, instead of, as a, for example, as a somatic psychotherapist, instead of saying, oh, the body's a good place and, and encouraging clients to jump in the deep end, Instead, finding strategies for very slowly teaching them how to swim. And first, it's just sit at the edge of the pool and dunk your toes in. Maybe for some people, it's just like, just look at the pool. <laughs> we're not even, we're not even going to get wet today. We're just going to like with the pool and, and spend as much time unpacking what the, you know, what the root sources of the fear are and really respecting them rather than just saying, oh, this is something that needs to be overcome, just, you know, go do it and I'll help you. Um, I think that, that too much too soon and, and insufficiently supported is likely to be re-traumatizing rather than, than healing and helpful. So I, I would say that. And I think that, that there are lots of ways um, to slowly, um, Peter Levine, who developed a, a somatic trauma model called somatic experiencing, uses a term called titration. It comes from chemistry, which is you very slowly drop something in, um, that in a way that doesn't cause a chemical reaction, whereas if you dumped it in quickly, it would cause this sort of explosion. So um, I think titration, adding small pieces and really respecting the reasons why the body may, may in fact not be a comfortable or safe place 
it's where I always start. And, and, and Ray and I have actually talked about how we weave in that process of it almost, we talked about like a celebration of disembodiment, that we have that capacity. And to depathologize it is a really important process of any potential embodiment process. That to normalize we have that capacity and something in you was strong enough to actually make that choice or, to ch or for it to be chosen. And that is important to recognize that that too can be a strength if we, if we frame it in that direction, which may make it even more possible to choose that and choose this. And so that we, we regain our agency, which is our capacity to recognize we have choice at all, the, the ability to see what choices we have and the capacity to actualize the choice. Thank you, Scott. Um, so I'm gonna add uh, Lumpa two questions together that I see, and, and actually Sally has done a really nice job addressing one of these already. Um, so Terry asked to please define felt sense, and then Andrew asked a question about um, uh, saying, I notice in work with my clients a disconnect from felt sense being a great barrier for them in being able to feel the benefits of mindfulness and meditation. What are some ways to help move those barriers, so to speak, without stepping out of scope of practice as a massage therapist? Um, so maybe kind of building on what Sally's already off. Anybody wants to add, or if Sally wants to add, or anybody else? I, I just wanted to say, just quickly going back to the last question, that one really important thing is that no somatic technique should bypass dialogue. Right, should bypass the communication between the therapist and the client and the rapport, right? The the relationship. So this is just that, you know, it's it's a supplement in my work. Um, we never, it's not never almost never a place where we start. Uh, that that understanding and rapport needs to be set up. And and just to give one little uh, technique, you know, for um, for helping with the people embody themselves helping to access the felt sense is just to put a hand on either side of an ankle, for example, if the person, if you can, if the person is touchable, uh, doesn't mind being touched, put a hand on either side of an ankle and say, feel that you are between my hands, right? And, just, and you can even feel when they, when they come in. And I usually do ankle, ankle, wrist, wrist, just as the least kind of intrusive place to, to start with that. But if they have that, uh, sense of, of boundary you know we know that that babies get that sense of boundary if they're well held right and we can we can offer the same thing uh, to people who have difficulty accessing the internal space of the body the soma by giving them those that boundary of our hands i want to just read names i i reckon i just realized i forgot to name uh dr Teresa silo who's also a faculty member who's not here today who really brings in um, a piece of what Judith was sharing as well, which is um, embodiment and our developmental process. So she'll be, she'll be weaving that in quite significantly in the immersion as well. Okay, so um, this might be a Judith question as well. Uh, uh, Mia from Stockholm, hey Mia, says, Judith was talking about historic contractions that served a protective purpose, but that now keep us in the past. I would love to hear the panelists elaborate on maps that can guide us through trauma contractions to the present moment. 
Judith, perhaps you'd like to start and then we can uh, move around the table. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, there's a specific practice that we do of, of focusing within the tension in such a way that it moves along the path that we originally took to, to contract and in getting all the way there then can unfurl, can unwind along that same pathway. And then what's really important at that point, uh, the understanding of it, any memories and so forth, sometimes we can even align ourselves with the age or different ages that we were when we first moved into that contra contraction. And then we can let go of ourselves just as easily as volitionally letting go of a fist, you know, uh, because we get to the part of our mind that, that created that contraction. But the most important thing, you know, part of that is to inhabit the body afterwards when there's been some release so that we then claim uh, that little bit of new territory that we may have gained with the release so that we're not letting go into nothingness and to avoid, but we're letting go into this uh, pre, you know, already attuned to ground of being. I can add to that from a physiology perspective. Um, and, and that being, you know, when we're engaging with a stimulus that can be considered overloading, overwhelming, we'll have a deeper contraction of readiness to respond through our muscles. Not just our muscles, but we'll say it for right now, our muscles, uh, to engage towards or away from the stimulus. That, let's say that engagement never gets to actualize that engagement stays in a contracted form, which is what Judith is also offering. And it, it also uh, contracts, or we could say compresses even the nerve innervation or the sensory apparatuses, which creates essentially a desensitization in that area. So when part of you know, and then it becomes a, a, a bit of a loop that we can't really necessarily process something that's here unless we can feel it. And there's already a history of desensitization. So as Ray was sharing before, one of the ways even into that opening again, physiologically, is just the, the, the different technologies in to resensitization, to reconnection of our living body. Where can we feel? Starting with simply that as a place of having, as opposed to having to go in where it's not, where can we contact? And where can we grow that contact into places where otherwise contact is, a, is a vague or out of reach for momentarily until we can open that sort of um, dimensionally, open dimensionally ourselves back up and allow that uh, that energy that wanted to originally be mobilized to eventually mobilize and which Judith was also saying then make space for even more inhabitants. Thank you Scott. Um, so I'd like to move on to the next question unless anybody has any uh, thoughts to add. And I'm going to hand this one to Sally. Um, this is from Colleen and she uh, asks, what is the role, relationship, or importance of a teacher to, quote-unquote, a map um, and consciousness being revealed? I, I think we, we know that the most efficient way to learn a practice is, is by being, it, being in dialogue with somebody who's an expert at it. So I would say that the teacher is hugely important 
That said, for much of this information, much of this information is now available essentially on YouTube and on the internet. So once we, once we have the, uh, the intention to, to do this kind of inner work, we can usually find support uh, without actually physically engaging with another human being. So yes, teacher's crucial. Um, and teacher does not have to be embodied or like actually in front of you to make a difference. Thank you, Sally. Does anyone else want to talk about the role of the teacher? I know this is probably one that has a lot of differing perspectives. What I'm what I might add in terms of the role of the teacher is I think that um, in particular the the research in nonverbal communication um, really supports this idea that we are tracking one another on a bodily level really strongly and really well. We don't always come to the to useful conclusions about what the nonverbal interactions between us mean. Uh, so there can be misunderstandings in that communication flow. Um, but even the smallest micro movements have been shown to signal and convey a lot about the relationship, a lot about whether or not there's going to be rapport or trust. And I would, I would argue that we also learn from the bodies of our teachers, not from the words or the practices alone, but that we pick up something in terms of how a teacher inhabits themselves that we can then model. Thank you, Ray. Um, so I want to move to this question from Amy. I'm going to just jump around a little bit because um, it's sort of a, an order is revealing itself to me now, <laughs> somatically. Um, I am, I'm downloading. Um, so Amy asks, which I feel like the question is, what about nature really is what I would boil this question down to. Um, because, you know, action, it sort of, you know, it occurs to me that we're talking a lot about, you know, attuning to our somatic map and there, an argument could be made that there's sort of an introversive process that disconnects us from our environment. So Amy says, why do I feel comforted and at peace when I see a visual like the horizon line in nature where the ocean or land meet the sky? Why is the night sky in Joshua Tree, for example, so healing? Um, so this kind of larger version of the role of nature in, in, in this um, healing and transformation process. Um, maybe just, I know that Sally and Tara wanted to share, but I'll, I'll share maybe one of my favorite quotes from um, Sir John Woodrow, which is, um, what is here is there, and what is not here is nowhere. And so there's ways in which touching into the purity of nature touches and resonates into the purity of us. Nice. And Tara, would you like to talk about the role of nature in this process from your perspective? Sure. And then I want to pitch it back to Sally, who had her hand up the old-fashioned way. Well, two things I can say, which will actually combine the questions um, about the role of nature. I think it's it's a pretty common experience that um, some of us can feel that sense of continuity and belonging and a, a return to what we've now been referring to as a felt sense um, when swimming in the sea or when in Joshua Tree and um, sometimes talking with the trees or communing with the sky. And I think that's also written about 
in the experience of many spiritual teachers having that sense of unity self when in an, in communion with nature and um i i had this experience actually on a journey with sally where we were in joshua tree and spent some hours in a solo experience in and amongst the the rocks with a particular mantra that that was um you know and i am that mantra and having that sense of feeling the dissipation of of the separateness between myself and the sky and the rocks and uh, as a doorway in and i just wanted to add it to to the conversation about the role of the teacher i um i feel like for me having been shown the maps by um several of the people who are on this panel um especially sally that it it it's like having somebody walk ahead of you with a flashlight and and show you the path so that you can kind of stumble around a bit in the dark but when when people have traveled this journey before and have a flashlight to guide the way it 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 not only illuminates the path, but it also, um, from their own embodying of the experience, gives you, um, as Ray was saying, a, 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 a living example of what the map might offer. So I, I personally am so grateful for the, the teachers that go before and, and you know, journey and, and experience themselves so that that they can share that. All right. Um, thank you, Tara. I'm going to uh, fuse a couple of questions. Um, one is, and, and I realize, you know, there, there are no um, neuroscientists on the panel today, but um, uh, Amy asks what's happening to the mind neurologically when you connect to your heart center for a period of time. And I feel like this also uh, couples nicely with SN's question, which is how can we relate the sensory and internal experience of embodied consciousness to science? And I realize I just skipped over Sally talking about nature, so we can go back to that surely um, uh, if we like. But does anyone want to uh, answer this question about the relationship between what we're talking about and, and scientific kind of narratives? My, my husband, uh, Zoran Yusipovich, is a neuroscientist and he, his main focus of his work is trying to find the neural correlate, the neural signature of this ground consciousness that uh, some of us have been talking about. It's of course a very difficult thing to, to study and an even harder thing to find funding for, but it's a very difficult thing to study because first you need to accept a person's self-report that they are in fact experiencing that and and believe and that it's exactly the same experience as the other people you're testing so but it is in process and i and i do think it's a, a and i've been to several conferences lately where i've heard scientists talking about this frontier of really trying to understand what what consciousness is and and what this very subtle embodied consciousness is in terms of of science Thank you. First, uh, let's go back to Sally for a moment. Sally, did you want to contribute to that question around nature? I apologize for passing over you before. No worries. Uh, well, the thing with nature, there's two things that I think are really, really significant. And one is that nature, nature is the witness. 
uh, I mean, literally, nature, once you tune into nature, it, you recognize that nature is conscious. It's mirroring ground consciousness. It's producing ground consciousness. And this is why when you're looking at the, as Amy said, the, hor the horizon line, or when you're looking at the night sky, which, as we know, is one of the main metaphors that spiritual teachers in the Eastern traditions use to help us uh, connect to big mind, to the great, to the great self, um, you're actually connecting to consciousness itself. That somehow, because I guess nature, the natural world doesn't think, <laughs> as far as I know, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of an unmediated uh, transmission of witness consciousness, of pure consciousness through the natural world that if we're sensitive, we can tune into. And even if we're insensitive, uh, it soothes us. And the other thing I wanted to say, I just read this recently, uh, is that once Jackson Pollock, the great uh, abstract expressionist painter, was asked why he doesn't paint from nature, why he didn't paint from nature, Pollock said, I am nature. So, at, which I think is really, you know, one of the most brilliant experiential comments of our connection to the physical world that I've ever heard by someone who had deeply mined his own natural uh, connectedness and was, was able to express it in an original way as, as, an, as nature itself. Well, thank you, Sally. Um, so I want to actually ask a follow-up question to the science question, and this is actually my own question um, to, to all of you, which is, you know, to what extent does the, because, you know, we're in this kind of, um, we're in this environment where the science is focusing on the contemplative practices, and there's a lot of narrativizing around the science. And, and I'm wondering if there's a concern in, in any of you that, that the scientific explanations or the scientific languaging of is, 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 is being um, from the perspective of contemplative practice sometimes deflect us away from our embodied experience. Since, since I since I was since I picked up on that before, let me say that you know even living with a scientist, I am I am very concerned about it uh, because I think that we can where science is so extremely respected in, in our society that we can take just nascent ideas, just just baby ideas in science as the absolute reality is that's now that's true and and then we get to have a, a party line about the this this phenomenal mystery that we are and uh, and so i'm very concerned about it and and i also i also think it's very important that we keep in mind that we can experience so much more than science can touch at least at this point um, that it's very important that we trust our experience uh, primarily over over any sort of study that we that we read. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think Sally and, and Tara can speak to this more than I can, but the, the technology of experiencing ourselves predates any technology to measure that by thousands of years. And I think that's so important to remember 
And um, well, I feel like I could likely answer the question on the neuroscience. I, I find myself much more these days wanting to pause and not because I, I, I even in the collection of information that one might have, I, I would, I would be a little um, sad to take the potential experience away from someone by placing language or other frameworks onto someone's potential experience of what it is to sit deeply in one's heart. Um, I, 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 yeah, so I have found myself being much more um, cautious about layering on the science. And, and I, I love that quote that I'm gonna butcher by Albert Einstein, you know that one quote. Um, that where we, where we, when we can't stay in the mysterious and, and wrapped in the awe of things that were as good as dead, maybe someone can quote the, uh, get the quote verbatim, but I, you know, I grew up being Albert Einstein for Halloween most years. This is someone who I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, I, I stayed in the library as an elementary school student trying to understand the theory of relativity. And to, to hear someone who was so brilliant arrive at that recognition of how important it is to stay in the mysterious, to stay in the awe, is, is constantly humbling and, and so um, pertinent, I think, to as the, as the technology might continue to evolve, it's nowhere near the evolution of consciousness. Beautiful, Scott. Thank you. Um, so, you know, we are about five minutes out from our hard stop, uh, uh, more or less. So I want to maybe ask a question. Um, and there's actually a few questions that talk about this that are about trauma. And so Courtney says, um, in working with clients past trauma, I see they have difficulties letting go of the subjective self because what would they be without that trauma? Is it their identity Oh, it is their identity. Who are they without this pain, etc.? For some clients, I've experienced such disembodiments with clients as a form of erasure rather than freedom. Um, so, anyone want to touch on that? Um, identifying with the trauma as a, a way of coping. Uh, this is one of the reasons why we don't let go of trauma because we so deeply identify our traumatized self as who we are. And I, I know for me, um, the, the, the biggest shift in my experience of myself was made possible when I realized that my ego creates problems because that's what gives me an identity. My identity is as the one who experiences and solves problems. And in the same way, identifying ourselves as damaged, as wounded, as sick, as screwed up is one of the main ways we 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 find identity so uh the question i think is how can how can somebody reframe their identity whether it, it such that you are you are you are learning to identify with consciousness you know with your own ground and it, even if only for three or four minutes at a time so that there's a little bit of a gap between your, uh, your, your identification with your damaged self and your recognition of what we might call true self. 
it's it's the it is the big thing it's the biggest thing in this work is learning how to dis disengage with your your trauma identification thank you sally and um since this is probably our last question um does anyone else want to go next perhaps uh ray would you like to touch on this question yes you guessed exactly right i did want i did want to touch on that question <laughs> um i um, I would just add to what Sally said. Um, I, completely, I completely agree. Um, and um, that I would also add, um, sometimes it's helpful to reframe this question of, do I let go of my traumatized identity? And shift it into, hold on to it for as long as you want. And how about if we add other experiences? Don't let go. But that's not the task. The task is, um, just could you have other kinds of experiences that are not related to the trauma and have it be additive rather than an either or. Excellent. Thank you. So let's go through the whole panel so we can hear from everybody um, before we close out our wonderful uh, conversation today. Tara, would you like to say some words about, about this question or any, anything else that you'd like to add? I'm so humbled in the presence of all of these people and it's really um, an honor to be in this group and to be part of this this panel and really the immersion that's coming up. Thank you so much for having us. I think the only thing I would add is that uh, we don't need to let go of all of our trauma in order to know ourselves as as fundamental consciousness. Uh, it's a very gradual process of letting go, but the, the shift into that oneness is, is very definite, even though there's going to be still constrictions and patterns left. Mm. And Scott, take it home for us. <laughs> I wish I had a song to take us home. Um, I, I want to actually just end a little bit on the teacher note, which is, um, I would say every one of the faculty that is teaching on this immersion and is also here in this panel, I deeply consider my teacher. And, and, um, and the, the, the transmission of their own journey, of their process, of their willingness to excavate and inhabit and, and touch and grow and evolve is inspirational. And, you know, I, I sit in these meetings that we have together and I, you know, sometimes I just go turn it off and weep because it is so moving to be in such a collection of, of individuals of these, um, these embodied spiritual, uh, uh, political activists and, and I mean, there are words to even describe the potency of these people. And I'm, I'm just so elated constantly that I, I get to be part of this and that we get to do this together with um, uh, those who are able to join us. And, and I, I feel eternally grateful. Thank you, Scott. Well, I'd like to thank each one of our panelists, Scott 
Lyon, Sally Kempton, Judith Blackstone, Tara Judell, and Ray Johnson. And I'd also like to thank uh, the many people who showed up and joined us today in this really exciting and uh, illuminating conversation that I feel like really went um, into a lot of beautiful uh, territory, <laughs> to use our familiar word. And so if you're watching this and you feel like you missed a part of the conversation or you want to listen to it again, you will have access to this um, recording by midday tomorrow and you'll receive an email in your inbox. So thank you all so much. Uh, thank you to our panelists and have a wonderful rest of your day.